Let's get caught up to where we are. Remember now, the Assyrian war machine is on the move. The Assyrians seemed invincible. At the time, Assyria had assembled the largest standing army the Middle East had ever seen. Troops numbering in the hundreds of thousands of soldiers, skilled charioteers, iron swords, lances, metal armor, giant siege towers, heavy battering rams were items and weapons that were brought into use by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were also experts in the use of propaganda and intimidation. The Assyrians were the ones who would pile human skulls in stacks right outside the gates of the city to scare passers-by, to strike fear in their hearts. Messengers were often sent to the besieged cities to literally shock them and scare them into surrender. The Assyrians interpreted each victory as a conquest for the gods of the Assyrians. In the year 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire sprawled across the continent. In fact, Israel had been conquered. Its king had been taken prisoner. The capital of Samaria had been sacked. The northern kingdom, 10 of the 12 Hebrew tribes had been scattered. The Assyrians were on a roll and they cast a shadow over the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, the drama intensified when Isaiah the prophet met King Ahaz in a field just north of Jerusalem. He warned him there that Judah would also be judged by the Assyrians unless Judah repented of their sin and unless King Ahaz got right with God. You can read that account in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah's word was judgment will occur unless King Ahaz repents. Well, Judah is saved really because King Ahaz died. And his son, his successor, Hezekiah, repented and prayed and asked for God's forgiveness. And it was because of Hezekiah that God spared the southern kingdom of Judah. Tonight, we're going to read about God's deliverance of Judah from the hands of the Assyrians. Chapter 18. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Notice this. He removed the high places. Oh my. Hezekiah did what his predecessors didn't have the courage to do. He went throughout all Judah and he removed all of the little private altars, the personalized altars, the altars of convenience, the high places as they were called. Hezekiah insisted that God be worshipped the way God desired to be worshipped and that was at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And he broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. And this is the first mention of this that we've run across. The word Nehushtan means a thing of bronze. Amazingly, the Hebrews had made an idol out of an instrument of God's grace. You remember the occasion when Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness God sent serpents into the camp to judge his people. Moses made a bronze serpent as a means of healing. And everyone who had been bitten by the serpent was told to look at this bronze snake and be healed. Bronze was a symbol of judgment. The serpent was a symbol of sin. And so that bronze serpent was a symbol of sin's judgment and God's atonement. In fact... In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said that this bronze serpent actually signified his crucifixion. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Just as those who had been injected by that venom of poison, just as they looked upon that bronze serpent and found healing, 
you and I, those of us that have been injected by the venom of sin, all we have to do to be saved is to look upon Jesus, lifted up on the cross, where sin has been judged at the cross of Jesus. Once we look upon him in faith, we too have been healed and we've been forgiven. On the cross, sin was judged. Its penalty was paid. Salvation was won. Now, apparently, the people of Judah had replaced God with a symbol of God. This happens. They had turned the bronze serpent into an idol. And this is why God renamed it. He called it Nehushtan, a bronze thing. In other words, it had no power of its own. It was just a thing. God looked at it after he had used it. That's just a thing. Just a thing. All it is. Seems to me, whenever people lose the personal awareness of God's presence, they usually substitute a reminder of what they once possessed. They get attached to a relic. Or they become preoccupied with some ritual or some observance. They try to fill the void in their life with resemblance rather than substance. But you see, the things of God are a sorry substitute for God himself. Hope you remember that. I'll say it again. The things of God are a sorry substitute for God himself. There will always be a Nehushtan, just a thing that will preoccupy or grab your attention. Don't follow after the Nehushtans. The way back to God is a simpler route. Hey, confession, true repentance, that's what reattaches you to God. That's what gets you back in touch with Him. Admit your sin and trust in Jesus. Well, verse 5, Pace has a quiet, quite a compliment. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after Him was none like Him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before Him. Hezekiah was the man of the hour. He was just what Judah needed for the crisis at hand. Rather than bow to Assyria, he trusted in God. And he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Second Chronicles, in fact, tells us more of Hezekiah's reforms. He cleansed and reopened the temple after Ahaz had closed it down. He purified the priests. He reinstituted the Passover in Judah. It's interesting, Asa... Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, these were all good kings, but none of them went as far as Hezekiah in his desire to please God. Hezekiah led the people back to the law of God. And as a result, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Well, now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. The year was 725 B.C. And at the end of three years, they took it. Samaria fell to the Assyrians in the year 722. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And here's Hezekiah's understanding of why her northern tribes, her northern brothers, fell. It was not even because of the Assyrian strength. Notice why they fell. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. Last week, we talked about the fall of Samaria and its consequences, how the nations, the northern tribes, were scattered. Here, the information is repeated for us. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Remember, Assyria was to the north. And in between Assyria and Judah was Israel. So Assyria has now come down from the north, has conquered Israel, and now the next nation in line is the southern kingdom of Judah. And so here, Sennacherib pours through 
those northern towns that sort of bordered Judah. These were the border towns, the suburbs of the city of Jerusalem. Judah's first line of defense. They weren't much of a defense because Assyria breezes through these barricades and suddenly camps just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And this is not good. This is out of character for Hezekiah. What happens? Hey, think about it. All of a sudden, you've got hordes, hundreds of thousands of ferocious warriors camped just outside your city gates. You know, it's hard for me to judge, be too hard on Hezekiah. He panicked. That's what happened. He came unglued. He was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. And when he looked out and he saw those hordes of enemy soldiers just outside the wall, I mean like ants on buttered bread, suddenly his courage disappeared. He capitulated. He said, what can we pay you to buy you off, to make you move? And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And remember, a talent was a measurement of about 100 pounds. The king of Assyria is pretty demanding here. 30,000 pounds of silver, 3,000 pounds of gold. Verse 15. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. This was the strategy the kings of Israel had adopted. They too tried to buy off the Assyrians, but it didn't work, did it? The Assyrians kept coming back for more until they finally took it all. And I hope you understand, this is how Satan works. Don't think, I'll give in just a little to temptation. I'll just try it one time, then it'll go away. I hope you don't think like that. I'll do this just once. I'll do it one more time, one last time, and then I'll stop. Don't be a fool. It never works that way. You see, Satan isn't satisfied with stealing a little of your virtue or putting a dent in your integrity. He wants to destroy you completely. He'll always keep coming back tomorrow. You give him an inch, and he'll take a mile. This was also the case with Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. For then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. Now Lachish was the Assyrian command post southwest of Jerusalem, which indicates that the Assyrians now have the whole city of Jerusalem surrounded. From Lachish all the way around the northern suburbs, all of Jerusalem is surrounded by these Assyrians. And now Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he sends three officials to Hezekiah. First was the Tartan. He was sort of the chairman of the joint chief of staffs. He was the military leader. These were not names, by the way. These were more titles. Then he sent the Rabsaras. He was the chief eunuch, probably the White House chief of staff. And then there was the Rabshakeh. He was the chief cupbearer. By the way, the position that Nehemiah will occupy one day. An Assyrian trademark was its propaganda machine and its propaganda tactics. What they would do is to send messengers to a city and play on the people's fears and try to intimidate the people. Cities often surrendered to the Assyrians without even fighting. This is what they're trying here. And they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the Fuller's Field. And this location is strategic. Go back and read Isaiah chapter 7. Remember, the Fuller's Field was where the prophet Isaiah had confronted Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, and had warned him of a coming judgment. Evidently, the Assyrians knew of Isaiah's prophecy. They had read the Bible more than Ahaz had because they knew where to conjure up these feelings. They went right back to that fuller's field. Now judgment has come was the implication. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came out to them. And so we've got a meeting of officials, the Assyrian dignitaries, and then the officials, the cabinet members of King Hezekiah. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. In other words, they're saying, surely Hezekiah isn't depending on a flimsy Pharaoh to come to his aid. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah had taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now this is some erroneous information. Hezekiah had not taken away God's high place. God was against the high places. He was doing that in obedience to God. But they're twisting the facts and coming up with their propaganda. Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. In other words, Assyria, the Assyrian leader, has read Isaiah the prophet. And Assyria is here claiming to be Jehovah's tool of judgment on the people of Judah. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. These were educated men. They were bilingual. They could speak Hebrew, of the Assyrians, the Aramaic. And they wanted these negotiations to be private so that the troops didn't hear this propaganda. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? That's what would happen in the middle of siege conditions. The stores of food and water would be depleted and people ended up resorting to drinking their own waste and eating their own waste. This is sort of the equivalent of what we do today. You know, when we send the airplane over the enemy camp and drop the little leaflets, you know, down into the camp, written in the enemy's language, encouraging them to rebel against their own leaders and their own officers and go ahead and surrender. You know, why be slaughtered? You know how we do this today? This was sort of the equivalent. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. Everybody could understand him. And spoke saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by present, and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. And here's a promise right out of the satanic book of lies. He tells them that Sennacherib will lead them to a land of milk and honey. Wait a minute, you're in the land of milk and honey. Hey, all these bloodthirsty Assyrians plan to do is slaughter the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. And this is where it gets into blasphemy. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamoth and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim 
and Hena and Iva. Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? When Assyria went to battle, they believed that the gods of Assyria were fighting against the gods of their foes. Sort of that, sort of this my God against your God kind of thing. May the best God win. I mean, that, that's how the Assyrians approached a battle. And these Assyrian diplomats are enumerating all of the gods that have fallen before them. What makes Judah think that their God, Jehovah God, is going to be any different than the gods of these other peoples that have been conquered? And you know, this is the argument that Satan often fosters on folks. Oh, you've tried religion. It didn't work. Why do you think Jesus is going to be any different than the religion you've tried before? Could it be that you've just not tried the right religion? Perhaps you haven't knocked on the right door yet. Yes, the Assyrians had defeated all of the gods of all of the nations that they had conquered. But perhaps they've yet to run across the one true God. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household... Shebna the scribe, Joah the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. In chapter 19, Hezekiah responds to the Assyrian threat the way that you and I should respond to the crisis that we face. He prays. He takes his problem to the Lord. Notice this. And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Now, I'm not sure you need to tear your clothes and buy burlap to wear, but the idea is to humble yourself, to admit your weakness. When you face a crisis, seek God for his active assistance. Then he sent Eliakim, told, Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Hezekiah sends a prayer request to the prophet Isaiah. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Please, Isaiah, pray for us. And so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, And he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. What an encouragement that must have been to Hezekiah. And this is going to take nothing less than a miracle. But God is saying, Hezekiah, if you hold your ground, God will send this king, Sennacherib, back to Assyria. He'll send him away. A rumor will flush him out. He'll send him back to his own land where he'll fall by the sword. Well, then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terahakah, king of Ethiopia, Look, he has come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Now here's what's happening. When this delegation returns from Jerusalem to Lachish, to report back to the Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. They find that Assyria has gotten engaged in other conflicts. All of a sudden now, they're fighting on multiple fronts. And since Sennacherib doesn't want to waste any firepower on a little nation like Judah, again, it's to his betterment if he tries to intimidate them into surrender. And so this time, his tool of intimidation is a letter. 
And he sends a letter to Hezekiah. We find it in verses 10 through 13. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Resef and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Seraphim, Hena and Iva? This is rhetoric that he's heard previously. Over and over he's telling them, where were their gods? If their gods didn't come to their defense, what makes you think that your God will come to your defense? And again, Sennacherib hasn't considered that maybe he hasn't run across the right God, the true God. Reminds me of the pastor who received a threatening letter, just like this one. The problem, though, is that on his letter, only one word was written. He received this letter in the mail obvious, from an obvious critic, and the one word on the letter said, fool. And so that Sunday, just like Hezekiah did, this pastor brought that letter to church, brought it right into the temple, brought it right up to the pulpit, and he told the crowd that he had received an unusual letter. He says, never before have I opened a letter where the writer signed his name but forgot to write anything else. (laughs) Well, Hezekiah also brings his threatening letter to church, verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He immediately takes this letter into the temple and he unrolls the scroll out before the Lord. I hope this is how you handle your problems. When you receive a threatening letter or or threatening news, do you bring that news before the Lord and just sort of spread it out before Him? Lord, this is it. Here's my situation. Here's my problem. Let let me give you the details. Now, God knows the details. (laughs) But it helps us to spread it out. To just sort of get it all out before the Lord. Verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah spreads out the situation, but then he focuses on God. Oh yes, this is a big problem, but Hezekiah has a big God. You need to remember when you have a problem that you have a God who's bigger. He says, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. In other words, all of these other gods that have fallen before the Assyrians, they weren't God at all. You alone are God. You're the creator. You're the sovereign over all kingdoms. No king is greater. No problem is bigger than our God. You know, often our problem can cloud our perspective. And this is why once you've spread out the problem, immediately shift your focus onto the Lord. The king continues. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. So what if they've knocked off a few wooden statues? Let's see how they do up against the real God. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Boy, I love this prayer of Hezekiah's. I like to call this prayer a back-against-the-wall prayer. You ever had your back against the wall? Have the odds, ever been up against the odds, the odds were against you? Boy, in those times, you need to pray like Hezekiah did. Here's a five-fold prayer. Jot these five things down. Take it to God. Here's a back-against-the-wall prayer. Take it to God. Second, spread it out before God. Third, 
Focus on God and His greatness. Once you got the problem spread out, then turn your attention to the greatness of God. Fourth, see the situation from God's perspective. And then fifth, make your request to God with His glory in mind. That's how you pray a back-against-the-wall prayer. Well, verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. In other words, they've laughed at Assyria. Assyria is going to be made a laughing stock. For Assyria has been foolish enough to dare to speak against the one true God. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice? Who have you been talking about, Sennacherib? Have you forgotten how great God is? And who have you lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? You should be shuddering in your boots. You've spoken against God. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Notice Assyria's boast. I, I, I. Don't you know that the middle letter of sin is I? And the middle letter of pride is I? Assyria is taking credit for its success. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? You remember, even in the law of Moses, God had predicted that a nation would rise up, that God would use as an instrument of judgment. God had predicted the rise of Assyria. From ancient times that I formed it, God is the one who raised up Assyria. Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown." For centuries, the Hebrew prophets had predicted that God would use the Assyrians as an instrument of His judgment. God had been responsible for Assyria's rise to power. Not Assyria, not Sennacherib, not these pagans. And I love what God says to Sennacherib in verse 27. But I know your dwelling place. In other words, God is saying to this king, Hey buddy, you big talker? I know where you live. Before my dad retired from the phone company, he worked as a central office foreman. And that's why when my mom started getting obscene phone calls, he was able to go in and trace the call. In fact, he got the name and the address of the person who was making the calls. And he drove by the guy's house. As a matter of fact, he saw the guy's car. He even got a good description of the teenage culprit who was making the calls. Then my dad called the boy. He told him his address. He told him the make and model and color of his car. He gave him a good description of what the boy had been wearing that day. And then the boy was reminded by my dad that he didn't know what my dad looked like. But my dad knew all about him. And dad assured the boy that if my mom got another obscene phone call, that he was going to strike when the boy least expected it. He made sure that that boy never made another obscene phone call again. And afterwards, the calls ended, for it is frightening to hear, I know where you live. <laughs> and it's especially frightening when God says to you, I know where you live. That's what he says to Sennacherib. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in. I've been watching you, man. And your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. 
Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. God is going to lead Assyria around like a dog on a leash. And remember at this time, Assyria is the world's lone superpower. But God is in control, not King Sennacherib. And for that matter, not the President of the United States, or the Premier of China, or any other puppet leader, human leader. Verse 29, this shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same, and also in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. In other words, God promises that this threat is going to pass. You'll still be in the land eating this fruit after the third year. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It won't be Hezekiah's might that will deliver Judah. God is going to do this work. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. The walls of Jerusalem will not be breached. There will be no attack. He says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now the showdown occurred at night. Just outside Jerusalem's gates in the camp of the Assyrians. Verse 35 gives us the details. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. And every corpse I've ever seen was dead. One combat angel sent by God in one night took out 185,000 troops of the Assyrians. Did you know that 185,000 people is the population of Columbus, Georgia? Imagine the whole city of Columbus getting taken out in one night. Well, let's not imagine that. My daughter lives in Columbus. But a comparable city. Not only does the Bible record this slaughter, it also appears in secular history, interestingly enough. The Greek historian Herodotus made mention of Sennacherib's defeat. In fact, Herodotus says that a plague of mice invaded the Assyrian camp. Well, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he departed and he went away, returned home, and he remained at Nineveh. When Sennacherib awoke to the news of such a crushing defeat, he tuck-tailed, he ran home to Nineveh. What he should have done was to fall down before the one true God and worship Jehovah, the God of Judah. But instead he returned home to pay homage to his idols. And now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adramelech, and Sherezir struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Eshardan, his son, reigned in his place. And thus fulfilled the word of God to Sennacherib. In chapter 19, verse 28, he would return the same way that he came. In chapter 19, verse 7, he would fall by the sword in his own land. Well, chapter 20 begins... In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. This is not a little cold. He's seriously sick. He's on the verge of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. 
Not an encouraging prognosis. And notice here, it's coming from God. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order. You're about to die, man. That's from the great physician. (laughs) This is not encouraging. Now, Hezekiah has just experienced the power of prayer. So he prays again. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. And it will be immediate. For on the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil and he recovered. Here's an amazing story with some heavy theological implications. Apparently, God changed his mind. I didn't know that could happen. Notice Isaiah spoke. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. But when Hezekiah prays and asks for more time, God changes his mind. He heals this king, and he gives Hezekiah 15 more years. Now here's the question. Is it really possible for us to change God's mind? Can we do that? And here is the clear-cut answer. Yes and no. You see, God has some plans that are unalterable. God has some plans that are set in stone. But He leaves other plans subject to our input. Now, as a father, as the head of my household, this is how I operate. At times, I make decisions that I know are going to change several times. In the course of the hey guys, we're going to Chili's to eat. Oh, Dad, I don't want to go to Chili's. Honey, we ate at Chili's last week. Let's go to Red Lobster. And, and you know, it goes back and forth. And, and you know, I made it's a decision I made, but I know it's going to get changed. And I really made the decision to get input from the family. There are some decisions that that I make, knowing that the input is going to affect you know, the final decision. But there are other decisions that I make that are set in stone. They're inflexible. They're they're done. It's a done deal. So let it be written. So let it be done. (laughs) And here's the deal. You never know which decision is which until you ask. That's important. And this is why God encourages us to pray. Because we don't know if His plan is a done deal or whether His plan is open to input. It could be either. You never know until you ask. Sometimes God's will is set in stone. But more often than not, God is looking for us. And He wants our input. He wants us, like a good father, to feel a part of His family. And therefore, He gives us input gives us say into decisions. This is why we're told in Ephesians 6 verse 18 to be praying always. For you never know whether it's set in stone or whether it's up to your prayers. Now having said that, is it wise to change God's mind once he's spoken? Hezekiah was given 15 more years, but we're going to see that during those 15 years, Two events take place that have a negative impact on the future of Judah. Verse 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? 
Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward ten degrees? That would be no big deal for the shadow of the sun to go forward ten degrees. moving forward all the time. So Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, let the shadow go backward ten degrees. Just roll time back ten degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. When Isaiah asks for a sign to validate God's promise to Hezekiah, the Lord blows him away. He turns the shadow on the sundial back ten degrees, or literally 45 minutes some commentators try to explain the phenomena as a formation of clouds that just sort of refracted the sunlight. But that's not really what explains what's stated here. There is historical evidence that along with Sennacherib's defeat, certain celestial cataclysmic events took place. What happens here could have been what happened during Joshua's long day. We talked about that earlier. Perhaps a near flyby with another planet or a comet penetrating the earth's atmosphere may have knocked the earth off kilter. You know, the axis of the earth isn't, you know, symmetrical. It is tilted a certain way. What caused the axis of the earth to tilt? Could have been something that happened in Sennacherib and in Hezekiah's day. You know, it's interesting that in history, prior to Hezekiah's time period, the world's calendars were all marked by 360-day years, symmetrical months and years, 12 months of 30 days each. But around this time in history, the ancient calendars started to make adjustments for the asymmetrical rotation caused by the Earth's tilted axis. It's possible that God's attack on the Assyrians could have involved something celestial, could have involved some kind of a, a comet or a meteorite that struck the earth and tilted the axis. The loss of 45 minutes on the calendar may have been the result. In the latter half of chapter 20, the Babylonians send a get-well delegation to Hezekiah, verse 12. At the time, Baradak Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And this was foolish. Hezekiah escorts the Babylonian spies, takes them on a tour of the royal treasuries of Judah. Now they're going to remember what they saw. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And where were these men from? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. The Babylonians will remember what they've seen and they'll want it for themselves. And after they conquer the Assyrians, they'll become the leading power in the region. And God will use them to eventually judge the nation of Judah. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And you know four of them. Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all these sons that were mentioned here. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? And this shows you Hezekiah's short-sightedness. For in essence, he's basically responding, Oh, okay, I'm not worried about the future as long as there's peace today. That's what he's saying here. 
He cares only about what happens in his lifetime. Sounds like those who oppose America's war on terror. As long long as we're happy today, everything's fine. We'll We'll let future generations worry about that. Well, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might, and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And on our last trip to Jerusalem, we saw Hezekiah's tunnel. And it is quite an engineering feat. Six feet high, two and a half feet wide. It runs 1,700 feet through solid stone. And it brought water from the Gihon Spring up into the city walls to the Pool of Siloam. Hezekiah built the tunnel in anticipation of a prolonged siege. It was a water supply within the gates. And today you can roll up your pants legs and you can walk up that tunnel. And so Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. And the mere mention of the name should send chill bumps up and down your spine. Manasseh made a mess of everything. Chapter 21 opens with a litany of King Manasseh's sins. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. In other words, he was into astrology. He sought guidance from the stars. And he also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Manasseh even brought the idolatry into the temple. This was God's dwelling place on earth. This was God's footstool, the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the one place the Hebrews knew that they could meet with God. And Manasseh is now turning the house of the living God into a museum of idols. And he also made his son pass through the fire, child sacrifice, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. Manasseh was into the occult. The boy was a witch is what he was. He invoked satanic powers to do his bidding. And Judah had to put up with him for longer than any other king. Fifty-five years. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Azurah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. This Manasseh, he worshipped lewd, immoral fertility goddesses in the very place where God had promised to give life to his people. He set up this image of Asherah. And Judah allowed Manasseh to do these evils. They knew the law of Moses, verse 9, but they paid no attention. Never a good idea for people not to pay attention to what their leaders are doing. You need to pay attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Did you know that tradition tells us that it was Manasseh who had the prophet Isaiah sawn in two? We'll get to that in Hebrews chapter 11. Manasseh was the evil villain who did that to Isaiah. Had him cut in half. And the Lord spoke by his servants the prophets saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Shiver me timbers. I mean, disaster will come. 
Judgment, fierce judgment is going to come because of the sins of Manasseh. Verse 13. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Wiping it and turning it upside down. It's like what we have to do before we put the dishes in the dishwasher. I don't really know why we have a dishwasher. Because you have to pretty much wipe them clean anyway, you know, before you can put them in the dishwasher. But think, think of that standing over the, the garbage disposal or the trash can or whatever and just wiping the dish clean. That's what God is going to do with Judah because of her sin. And so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Get the impression God's patience is running out. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. And 2 Chronicles 33, read it when you get home tonight, records an amazing event. Late in his life, Manasseh repented and got right with God. And believe it or not, God forgave him of all of his sin. Which just goes to show, if God will forgive a man like Manasseh, then God will forgive you. And Manasseh tried to do some things to undo the damage that he had done. The problem though, it was too little too late. He had already ruined his influence on his son, and so his son mimicked his wickedness. You see, that's the problem with sin. You can go off and you can sin. You can sow your wild oats. And later in life, you can make your peace with God. You, you can pray and repent. God will forgive you. But the damage you've done to your family will remain. And the seeds of wickedness you've put into the heart of your kids, they'll remain there. You can't erase that. Manasseh's proof. Verse 19 and Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, your guess is as good as mine, Meshulameth. Meshulameth. Let's all say it together. Ready? Meshulameth. Yeah, mom. The daughter of Haruz of Jotba, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. Notice he didn't follow in his repentance. He followed in his sin. And so he walked in all the ways that his father had walked. And he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And Josiah is one of the good guys. Which brings us back to our question. Should Hezekiah have changed God's mind? In the 15 years his life was extended, two tragedies occurred that had lasting repercussions. First, the evil Manasseh was born. According to Jeremiah 15 verse 4, Judah will spend 70 years in exile in the land of Babylon because of this one man's sins. He would have never been born had Hezekiah kicked the bucket when God originally pronounced his death. And second, during those extra 15 years, Hezekiah takes the Babylonian spies on a tour of Judah's treasury, which was one of the reasons that they later invaded. 
I think Judah, and it's easy for me to say, but I think the nation Judah would have been better off if Hezekiah had just submitted to God's initial verdict and just gone on and kicked a bucket. It's your time, man. Just go on. God's ways are best, and sometimes we need to trust Him, even though His will doesn't seem to be in our immediate interest. So I just hope God doesn't come and tell me to put my house in order tonight. Kind of easy for me to say, wasn't it? If I'm Hezekiah, I'm on my knees praying too, probably. So I'll let you decide the answer to that question.